case file number 4.2. CIA grab bag. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. So I know we've talked about other CIA operations in the past. Mm-hmm. Can't remember all that we've talked about. I mean, there's a, a huge number of them out there. So uh, this this episode, along with probably like maybe one or two future episodes, is just going to be kind of like a grab bag of random CIA operations that were not like you know crazy involved, but are kind of strange. Mm-hmm. And at one point, we might actually talk on uh, Operation Paperclip, which will probably be its own episode entirely, given that at that's least, a lot of stuff. Yeah, that ends up leading to a lot of things technology-wise that are very important, but maybe not necessarily infosec. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll start off with, have you ever heard of uh, Operation Gold? No. No, I, that doesn't ring a bell. It was a joint op between the CIA and the MI6 agencies uh, back in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And the goal of it was to tap the landline of the Soviet Army headquarters in Berlin uh, using a tunnel. Okay. It was similar to another operation called Operation Silver. Go figure. Um, <laughs> in 1949, where the British had actually tapped the Soviet landlines in their headquarters in Vienna. And okay, so they were like, "Hey, <laughs> we it worked once." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why not? Why not do it again? It was considered a success, Operation Silver, that is. Um, but in 1953, details of the operation were passed uh, onto the KGB by a British double agent by the name of George Blake. Hmm. I don't know that. I probably remember here that the more famous one was Kim Philby. Mm-hmm, yeah. But George Blake, I don't like that name does, doesn't really ring a bell. I think, I think these were like the major contributions by him. Mm-hmm. But. Operation Gold was activated in 1954, so you know those two times are going to come back <clears throat> due to fears that the Soviets might be launching a nuclear attack at any time, as they had already detonated the hydrogen bomb in 1953 when they were doing testing. Right. Yeah. Going back to the episode that you did about the Rosenbergs, that was like right around. That was maybe a year or two after they first did the um, did the first testing, and, mm-hmm. and yeah. like some of the, the Rosenberg stuff was going on like right right at this point in time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like maybe like two years ahead of time or mm-hmm. yeah, like right around Operation Silver. So uh, Operation Gold took about eight months to finish the construction of the tunnel. And all that construction began with the construction of a warehouse um, that acted as the disguise for the U.S. Army Intelligence Station. And it was located in the Ruda uh, district with an unconventionally deep basement that was 23 mm-hmm. feet uh, deep. And that was okay. to serve as the staging uh, area for the tunnel. So it was right near the that that center red sharpie line that they put right yep. down the center of Berlin. Okay. Yep, yep, exactly. It was a pretty intense engineering challenge as the tunnel was under the world's most heavily patrolled border at the time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they were, they were just kind of cartoonishly like tunneling right underneath it to uh, get to the other side. 
had they built the, the wall yet? I don't think they'd built the wall yet. Yeah, I don't think the wall was up. I think it was um, mostly fences and like security uh, right. patrols. Yeah, just, like it was heavily patrolled, but it wasn't the it wasn't the wall with the no man's land built around mm-hmm. the, the wall at this point. This is actually reminding me, it's like tangent. Um, I watched mm-hmm. a drunk history, uh, I think <laughs> like a week or two ago, about uh, this couple who were in Berlin and got separated. And uh, the man actually dug a tunnel uh, back to go uh, rescue his girlfriend. And as he was rescuing her, uh, the Stasi came and got her. And so he had to flee. And then he came back again through a different tunnel. And this time, like, rescued her and, like, brought her through the tunnel. I can't remember all the particulars. Um, and it was drunk history, you know, so it was hilarious yeah. watching it. But Well, I mean, there's a lot of really crazy stories about various ways people got out of uh, Eastern Europe through over or through the wall somehow we may that might even be worth huh. talking about that that and the stasi in an episode at some point yeah yeah that would actually be interesting because a lot of my history is focused on like world war one world war two and that's mm-hmm. a blind spot so i don't though those stories are really really cool to hear you know me uh the post-war era is really where where i've dug my uh my teeth sunk my teeth into dug my teeth into um yes i'm a yeah. naked mole rat just so everybody knows, I'm not actually a jackalope. <laughs> in doing this construction, they utilized the shield method. They basically just pushed forward on hydraulic rams, and the space was then lined with sand and like 1,700 cast iron lining plates. Okay. Uh, so they just kind of slowly made their way through. Mm-hmm. Uh, a wooden railway track acted as a guide for the rubber-wheeled construction vehicles, which by uh, the end of this entire thing had moved over 3,000 tons of materials. 3,000 tons. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that. That is a lot. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a lot of uh, dirt and junk. And actually, during the process, the diggers accidentally broke into an undocumented pre-World War II cesspool and flooded the tunnel. Oh! Yeah, that's a pre- pretty nasty day. Oh. oh! Wow! It's like, mm-hmm. a cistern would have been bad, but a cesspool. Yeah. This is why they tell you, always call a misutility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And in like any good um, spy movie or um, drama or anything like that, the entire uh, tunnel was lined with explosives throughout the entire operation so they could mm-hmm. blow it up and cover the tracks. Of course. And, you know, cause a minor foundation cave-in. Yeah, 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 whatever. <laughs> as long as nobody finds us, it's cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, some buildings we might, that we tunneled under might fall into this, but whatever. Might, might kill a few pedestrians. <laughs> the, the total cost of this ran over uh, $6.5 million. At the time, yeah, not 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 uh, calculated for now. Yeah, that was six point yeah. five million. Well, and this now. is before the conversion from the gold standard, so gold was thirty three dollars an ounce by law. To give everybody kind of a, a a metric by which to do the conversion. Yeah, I can't remember. I didn't make a note of it, but um, the article basically said like that's the cost of two spy planes at this time. Because that w- that would have been that what the U twos would have been yeah, yeah, yeah. just coming up and running at that time. Yeah, I think that, I think that's what it was. It was two U2s. Um, that was similar cost. Yeah. And so the Americans were able to listen in on telephone conversations for nearly a year, and they recorded uh, about 90,000 communications that the Russians were having. However, like I noted earlier, George Blake in you know, 1953 had you know, spilled the beans on Operation Silver. Well, he had once again informed the Soviets about the tunnel from the very beginning of the entire operation. Oh, I had heard about this, actually. I didn't remember. I didn't know it by Operation Gold, but there was actually an exhibit on this in at one point at the International Spy Museum in D.C. 
I don't oh, think okay. they current. Yeah, I don't think they currently have it up. I don't recall whether it was an old permanent exhibit or the uh, mm-hmm. or one of their special exhibitions. But since they moved into the new space, they've redone some stuff, and I don't remember seeing it the last time I went through. Oh, okay. Because like any person who lives anywhere near DC, I only go to the museums when I have people visiting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Still, so many like national monuments and stuff I never visited. So obviously the Soviets wanted to protect Blake because, you know, he was an asset of theirs. So they decided to just keep the flow of information going and not actually act on the intelligence that the tunnel was there. And they kept the flow of information as normal as possible uh, with the result that the tunnel was basically bonanza of intelligence for the U.S. and British. However, it was a bonanza of misinformation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the KGB's own high-level communications uh, were sent on a separate system of overhead lines anyways. And you couldn't tap those without it being like super obvious. Yeah, like, oh, we we build a warehouse through these uh, power lines. It's cool. Don't worry. Actually, there is a roadway that goes through a building, like literally through a building in uh, in Japan, in Tokyo. Oh, really? Yeah. It's it's wild to see. You see it and it's like, is that CG? I don't think that's CG. (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. I'll I'll have to check that out when I get to Tokyo. So, and on top of this, because they were concerned about uh, Blake's identity being revealed as a double agent, the mm-hmm. KGB left the GRU and the Stasi completely in the dark about the tunnel's existence. So you, we usually say the GRU. I know, oh, completely okay. arbitrary. We usually say the GRU. But yes, the GRU was the is the other Soviet intelligence agency because the Soviets and the Russians today like to have organizations working basically in parallel as kind of rival organizations, whether that's intentional or ways to break up fiefdoms and stuff like that. Uh, It is a thing that they have done both in the Soviet era and the modern era. And an aside to us in the InfoSec land, that is actually quite prevalent when you look at uh, Russian state actors. There's like three major organizations and several minor ones that are active doing different things and they're under different kind of directorships. Mm, right. uh, and they have significant rivalries between them uh and they'll do the same exactly this and not to and not tell the other guys what they're doing and stuff yeah which which i feel is detrimental in a lot of ways because that was one of one of many issues um when they were like looking back on 9 11 uh, like mm-hmm. intelligence just was not shared between the agencies because there was some sort of rivalry yeah. going on yeah, I, I think it's a combination of information systems and rivalries. That's a kind of a complicated subject when I think about, but I do think that in America, we we were a little bit more controlled about that than the Soviets were because the nature of party politics required them to create more fiefdoms. Yeah, I could be wrong about that. Some of the politics and the relationships of the um, political m- machine and the, and the actual government apparatuses, the bureaucracies that took care of those things is still a little opaque to the more casual researcher like me, rather than folks that like actually, uh, actual, uh, what do they call themselves? There's a term of art specifically for, for the folks that studied Russia and what was happening politically in Russia. Uh, well, in the Soviet Union during the Cold War, during when the Soviet oh, really? Union was active, there was a, there was a very like specific term which I'm completely blanking on because, of course, I'm oh. on mic. Exactly. Yeah. So, anyways, um, after Blake received a transfer in uh, 1955, the Soviets were then able to uh, quote unquote discover the tunnel. Mm-hmm. On April 21st of 1956, the Soviets and the East German soldiers broke into the eastern end of the tunnel, and 
during during this entire planning phase uh, by the CIA and uh, the SIS, uh, they had figured the Soviets would cover up any discovery of the tunnel, mm-hmm. um, you know, because they wouldn't want to go through the embarrassment, potential repercussions or anything like that. So they just hush hush it. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, the Soviets announced the discovery of the tunnel to the world press and told them it was a breach of norms of international law and, quote, a gangster act. Yeah, like they wouldn't have done exactly the same thing in a similar yeah, yeah, situation. Exactly. But, you know, honestly, that wasn't a, a bad bet on their part. Like there was a good chance that was would happen, but it wasn't mm-hmm. like 100%. Maybe contingencies would have been good. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the world the world media portrayed the tunnel project as a brilliant piece of engineering. I mean, it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, it speculated that the CIA gained even more from the tunnel discovery, um, as at the <laughs> time, the Soviet first secretary, uh, Khrushchev, was visiting the UK, and the tunnel was discovered a day before his state banquet with the Queen at Windsor Castle. Oh, so they tried to put egg on the, on the face of the, of the Americans, having known from the beginning that that tunnel was happening because they had a double agent. And they exposed America trying to malign the good name of the CIA, and it ended up backfiring. That's hilarious. Yeah, it's it's suspected that the Soviets and the British uh, at this time basically decided to just hush-hush any coverage of the British involvement in the project. Mm-hmm. Um, because there, there was no mention of Britain being involved, How, even though there's there's photos that clearly show like British labels on some of the equipment, <laughs> and they were just like, No, the, the Brits weren't involved. What are you talking about? No, we did that to obfuscate where the source of the materials, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, actually, that's that that that's not the worst alibi for that. Like, no, no, wh- I mean, what you think we just labeled all of our stuff like our stuff? No, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> In 1961, um, that's when Blake was actually finally uh, arrested. Mm -hmm. And at this point, this is when the West learned that the Soviets had known about the tunnel like for the entire time. And in in 1996, the Berlin city government contracted a local construction company to go down and excavate from the former American Berlin sector uh, approximately 83 meters of the tunnel that was to make way for housing development that was going on at the time. Mm-hmm. And then in 97, a 12 meter section was excavated to be displayed at the Allied Museum. And I wonder if part of that was then at the Spy Museum as well, or if they like shared it. However, uh, according to Wikipedia, the Allied Museum claims that their section was retrieved from the American sector, but that's apparently false. <laughs> well, of course, that's what they would say, regardless. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They just don't want you to know. I wonder where the explosives went. Right. So that was Operation Gold. Now we'll move on to Operation Acoustic Kitty. And, uh, Acoustic Kitty. Yeah, and that's basically how it sounds. There was an operation called Acoustic yep. Kitty in the pre-internet world. In a world before memes, mm-hmm. we had Acoustic I'm sure Kitty. there's an Operation Neon Cat somewhere going on right now. Maybe this will give me an idea for an Operation Electric Kitty. And before I go into this, I'll say uh, trigger <laughs> warning for cat lovers or animal lovers. Uh, oh, I think I've heard this, but I don't really remember any of this. I, I had not heard of this. You, you spoiled it a little bit. So the uh, CIA had plans to turn cats into portable spying devices. However, they only ever produced one because it abandoned the project after the test went horribly wrong. Uh, they they basically took a cat and turned it into a cyborg. Um, they had a surgeon implant a microphone in its ear and a radio transmitter at the base of its skull. And then they also wove an antenna into the cat's fur. And the 
Okay. The CIA operatives hoped that they could train the cat to sit near uh, foreign officials and spy on their conversations and just, you know, be able to relay all that back to them. And so for the official tests, CIA staffers uh, drove the kitty to a park and tasked it with capturing the conversation of two men sitting on a, on a bench. So, you know, pretty, pretty easy task. However, but you're training. A cat. Yeah. One, one thing they, they didn't apparently look into as anyone that's ever had cats would tell you, you can't train them. So the cat ended up wandering into the street and got ran over by taxi. <laughs> so that, that was the end, end of uh, that test. And um, according <laughs> to a heavily redacted CIA memo, uh, they said, quote, the problem was cats were not especially trainable. And our final examination of trained cats convinced us that the program would not lend itself to a practical sense uh, to our highly specialized needs. You'd figure that knowing that you had two components the electronics component and the cat behavior component, that it would be significantly less expensive to test the cat behavior side and like what you could do with a cat yeah. before you started figuring out expensive and portable radio transmitters. Yeah, you think, yeah, the training would come first and then you'd be like, all right, let's outfit it with like the equipment. You said this was like the early 60s, yeah. right? So like very early transistor radios you wouldn't be able to build the transmission system that they're talking about out of like off the shelf, ready to go components. Like we in the hacker world, that's one of the things that's great about where we are today. You can get yourself a Raspberry Pi and a GPS module and a cell phone module and strap it all together yeah, exactly. and do what you want with it. You need a component to interact with something and you can buy it off the shelf and there's online instructions because somebody's figured out exactly what you need mm -hmm. to do yeah. or like 80% of what you're trying to yeah, do yeah. somewhere on the internet. Yeah. That is the polar opposite of where technology was at at that point in time. And that's, I'm, I guess that's the thing that I, that I keep wanting to, to make sure people understand when we talk about tech at this point is that it was not trivial. Like building that, that radio wasn't mm -hmm. trivial. And like, let alone the surgical techniques to make it happen, I have less of a sense of where that would be. But getting that radio up and running, probably a non-trivial thing. It's probably, they did that first because it was the coolest thing to yeah, do. Yeah, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm dating myself, but like, you know, this was before even the time, like, you know, younger people listening to this, like we used to have like literal shoulder mounted bazookas that were our video recorders. And now you can just do it, you know, yeah. with your cell phone. I remember in the early 80s, my grandpa listening to baseball games on a transistor radio that was about the size of two decks of cards. <laughs> and that was reasonably good at the time. That was consumer off the shelf, what you would get. And a good, good chunk of that was speaker and everything. This was just pre-Walkman, but still. Yeah. So uh, this did not stop the US though from trying to create more cyborg animals. This also reminded me of... Um, <laughs> remember uh, back when the History Channel used to actually show history stuff and uh, ancient aliens and other bizarre random stuff. There was yes. there was one on just like very weird operations during World War II. And one was, I'm sure you've heard of this, the operation where we were going to tie, was it, I think we were tying TNT to bats or we were tying something to bats. No, so those were firebombs. Oh, firebombs, that's, that's what it was. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, training, yeah. training them to fly into uh, major cities in Japan. No, 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 no. No, 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 bat yep. Yeah, that didn't go well either. I believe it burned down the uh, the training area 
Yeah. So the details about that were that Japan, the construction in Japan at the time for most people was all wooden construction. Flammability was an issue. It was actually uh, one of the other other things that they did that Doolittle did. So Doolittle was an American general, and they and and uh, he engineered a lot of the bombings of Japan, including the Doolittle raids, which were actually more destructive than the atomic bombs, although they took thousands of planes uh, to do it. But essentially, at various points, some of the experimentation was how do we induce flammability, basically get a self-propelled fire tornado going. And they managed it once um, because Japan was very vulnerable to that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. So the bat bombs were um, a means to do that. So they strapped the incendiary device to the bats with an expectation that they'd find places to, to roost in like attics and yeah. stuff and then they were just going to detonate the um the incendiary devices but um when they tried it out on the test camp and i'm going from memory here i believe that it that the fire was that it worked but like went all out of scale yeah. and they weren't able to control yeah. it yeah that's what i remember uh watching was that like, yeah it burned down like the test facility and everything around it and they were like all right well this is scrapped <laughs> yeah and they put so much effort in finding exactly the right bat mm-hmm. that wasn't too big and wasn't too small and they could get enough yeah. of them. Yeah, the Goldilocks bat. <laughs> yes, the Goldilocks bat. Yeah. So in in 2006 as well, uh, DARPA asked scientists to create cyborg insects. And yes, insects are animals. With DARPA's support, researchers at Berkeley created a cyborg beetle uh, whose movement they could remotely control. And they reported uh, all these results to uh, or in uh, Frontier's in integrative neuroscience in uh, October of 2009. Okay. Yeah, the, the scientists apparently were able to demonstrate an impressive amount of control over the insect's movement and flight. Uh, they used an implant for neural stimulation of the beetle's brain to be able to start, stop, and control its flight. So what you're saying is that that scene from The Fifth Element where they had the spy roach was actually something that we could do yep. about 10 or so years yep. later. Yep and oh my god yeah. and remember remember black mirror yeah the, the show, show black mirror yeah back before the world wasn't so crazy that they like stopped making it because they were like we can't compete there were there was <laughs> that one episode that had robot bees um that they could use to like hunt down people i didn't see that one. Oh, okay uh, anyways in uh, 2018 walmart filed a patent for robot bees so we have that to look forward to when it goes uh, horribly awry and uh we're swarmed by robotic insects okay so I think I need to go and check to see if their patents have any kind of dog-based delivery for those robotic bees, because then the Simpsons will have proved prophetic once again with the dogs that shoot that shoot bees out of their mouths. <laughs> hey, man, don't so, underestimate it. The Simpsons did it first is a meme for a reason. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. So that was Acoustic Kitty. Uh, the next is Project Mockingbird, which you know sadly does not contain any mockingbirds. Well, considering the the horrible things that they've done to animals so far, yeah. perhaps this is a, this is a, this is a welcome change. Yeah. So, Project Mockingbird, and I actually stumbled upon this by accident because I was looking up Operation Mockingbird, which I'll I'll get to next. Okay. Uh, two completely different things. Project Mockingbird uh, was a wiretapping operation initiated by uh, President John F. Kennedy to identify the sources of government leaks by eavesdropping on the communication of journalists. Oh, and it never happened again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, the, the government learned their lesson and they moved on from this. And we're all safe and there's no spine. Um, Hi, guys. 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How's it going? In 2001, the Miller Center of Public Affairs published transcripts of a secretly recorded conversation, uh, or secretly recorded conversations, plural, in the Oval Office during the summer of 1962, where Kennedy utilized the CIA to spy on Hanson Baldwin, who was the national security reporter uh, for the New York Times then. Okay. Baldwin had basically angered the president after he had published an article in July of 1962 that divulged classified information from a recent national intelligence estimate that also included a comparison of the U.S. and Soviet nuclear arsenals. That was actually a really big deal at that time. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. So Kennedy got, got into office in part because his campaign was about a missile gap between, I believe it was Khrushchev's uh, Soviet Union and the United States at the time. And that was mostly based on bluster by Khrushchev and a CIA that basically that there was a faction that was took everything Khrushchev say, said and, and assumed the very worst rather than mm. going by intelligence that would have triangulated exactly what they were able to do. So right. one of the weird things was that Kennedy got into office and was like, oh, wait, there isn't a missile gap. And that ended up being a, a little bit of a tricky thing for him. Uh, it didn't end up mattering because he didn't stay in office for very long. But like the nuclear arsenals at that time, remember, were only a little bit removed from the actual or 10 or so, more like maybe 15 years removed from the first bombs at all. Mm-hmm. The delivery devices are very difficult at this point in time. The planes were preferred because ICBMs were very new. And right, yeah. the bombs were enormous. They could carry, I think the biggest ones in this generation could carry maybe two or three bombs. Uh-huh. Like that's the kind of thing we're talking about. Right, yeah. Yeah, and there's actually, um, I can't remember what it all went to because I remember listening to it like years and years ago, but there is a Dan Carlin Hardcore History podcast. Um, I think it's a two-part or three-part on um, Kennedy. Mm-hmm. And uh, like the Bay of Pigs and everything going on. Uh, during yeah, the Cold actually, War. I do remember listening to that. I don't remember if this is where I got that from, but there was Daniel Ellsberg's book, The Doomsday Machine, which talked a lot about kind of the generational developments. And then there was Command and Control, which is another great book about kind of the development of the nuclear delivery, the military, military and nuclear bombs right. over time, which I think is... A, very instructive and and I, I like to give it as a management example sometimes because well the strategic air command had more control over their personnel than basically anybody ever and everybody believed in the mission of everything and there's mm-hmm. still plenty of incidents where they couldn't control everything so it's kind yeah. of my lesson to managers is like i don't care what kind of metrics you have i don't care what kind of team building you have i don't care who you have the fact is we have an example of the best ever situation for this and they still couldn't do it your organization yeah. has got to be able to deal with variants yeah yeah exactly it's like the the adage that you know the best laid plan like or what is it that no plan survives first contact with the enemy yes uh-huh. <laughs> or bureaucracy <laughs> yeah 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 exactly in 2007, the CIA declassified a 702-page document uh, that's referred to as the Family Jewels uh, that made knowledge of Project Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. This was from a document compiled in 1973 as a directive from the Director of Central Intelligence at the time, uh, James uh, Schlesinger. Uh, he asked all the CIA employees to basically report on any past or present activities that they thought might be inconsistent with the agency's charter. 
<laughs> that sounds like a very interesting document. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a memo from uh, Howard J. Osborne to the uh, executive secretary of the CIA summarized the family jewels and basically said, quote, Project Mockingbird, a telephone intercept activity was conducted between the 12th of March, 1963 and the 15th of June, 1963, and targeted two Washington-based newsmen who, at the time, had been publishing news articles based on and frequently quoting classified materials of this agency and others, including top secret and special intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. So the CIA was operating against freedom of the press on American soil. Yep. Yeah, I could see how somebody could see that as not, you know, consistent with their charter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, well, later um, we'll talk about Daniel Pines, who saw it as, you know, like muddied water that it could be legal or illegal. And... <laughs> <laughs> So, according to the documents, uh, the order for the warrantless taps came from uh, John McCone, who was the uh, director of Central Intelligence at the time. Mm-hmm. He coordinated with uh, U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, uh, U.S. Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, and Director yeah. of Defense Intelligence Joseph Carroll. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it was hard for um, you know them to get this passed, Robert F. Kennedy, that his brother. Yeah, and and one of the Dulles brothers, for God's Mm -hmm. sake. (laughs) I'm I'm sure it was it was an uphill battle to get all this uh this going. Yeah, no, sorry, I'm just one of the Dulles brothers. I feel like he was like, uh, can I add something to that list? Because you know, (laughs) if we're gonna do one, we might as well, right? We may as well add more. (laughs) Yeah. In, in 1975, the Rockefeller Commission uh, inquiry examined into investigations by the CIA Office of Security that included surveillance and found two cases in which the telephones of three newsmen were tapped in order to determine their uh, sources of leaked info. The commission uh, wrote, quote, the CIA's investigation of the newsmen to determine their sources of classified information stemmed from pressures from the White House and were partly a result of the FBI's unwillingness to undertake such investigations. The FBI refused to proceed with an advanced opinion or without an advanced opinion that the Justice Department would prosecute if a case were developed. So basically, they went to the FBI and the FBI was like, hell no. And I find that interesting because that was mm-hmm. Hoover's FBI. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah, even, has a bit of a reputation at this point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Hoover's FBI even was like, no, nah, come on, man, we can't do this. No, uh, well, I, honestly, it was Kennedy who was in power. So that might have mm. been a power play to not do what Kennedy wanted. Yeah, that's true. I just I find this interesting, like given what was coming out there, which was a relatively minor thing because it's because it was strategic information. Daniel Ellsberg, which I mentioned earlier, he released the Pentagon Papers not too much later because that happened end of Johnson's administration, beginning of Nixon's. Mm. Imagine what this was. And to put a cap on that, Watergate. Yeah. One of the things you hear about is the is G. Gordon Liddy and company, the plumbers, breaking mm-hmm. into a psychiatrist's office. Yeah. That was Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist. They were trying to dig dirt up on him to malign him in the trial. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. So I actually, and hmm. I have that's fresh in my head because I just listened to the four-part series on the podcast scandal, which I also recommend. And nobody's mm. paying us for anything. At the time of recording, we ha- we haven't had any endorsement deals or anything yet. We will accept uh, donations, like in the form yes. of cookies well, and such. Remember, uh, Patreon. Yeah. 
So this this commission uh, concluded that quote the CIA had no or has no authority to investigate newsmen simply because they have published leaked classified information. Go figure. Mm-hmm. And in 2009, uh, Daniel L. Pines, assistant general counsel of the Office of General Counsel in the CIA, wrote a law review that was published in the Indiana Law Journal that challenged the as- uh, assertion that most of the activities described within the family jewels were illegal. Were legal or illegal? Were illegal. He wrote that the CIA was permitted to engage in warrantless electronic surveillance within the U.S. with the attorney general's approval if the purpose was to collect foreign intelligence, but concluded that Project Mockingbird was likely not legal because the apparent purpose of the surveillance was to determine the source of the leaks rather than foreign intelligence. Pines noted basically that the Rockefeller Commission also agreed with that conclusion. I wonder if the current wiretapping laws and the and the um, i forget the name of the, of the kinds of uh, of uh, secret warrants might have superseded that precedent. Mm, yeah. So that might not be the case right now, but sometimes you get opinions of convenience. Um, mm-hmm. There was a lot of that going on. I, I have particular disdain for some of the opinions of John Yu uh, during the our second war with Iraq, the the war, the war on terrorism. Where, mm-hmm. Yeah. Because. He, he wrote the torture memos. And so mm-hmm. just because it comes from somebody as an opinion doesn't mean that it's actual real precedent and what we should be aspiring to as Americans. Yeah, exactly. And then finally, Operation Mockingbird was, on the other hand, a large scale program of the CIA that began in the early years of the Cold War and attempted to manipulate news media for propaganda purposes. But before, before you get rolling, was Dan Rather involved in any of this? Uh, I didn't see his name come okay. up, no. Although there, there at some point, uh, well, well, we'll get to it. And I don't know, maybe maybe he is in this long, yeah. long list of people. Sure. Um, so the, the operation recruited the leading American journalists into a network and influenced the operation of uh, uh, front groups. And the CIA support of front groups was exposed when uh, 1967 Rampart's magazine article reported that the National Student Association was receiving funding from the CIA. <laughs> and then you brought up Watergate. So all of yeah. this was discovered after the uh, Watergate committee in 1973 found all of these domestic surveillance abuses and everything else going on. And this, this was just one of one of the many things. Well, bet your uh, Coin Intel Pro was probably part of that group too. What, what is that? Coin Intel Pro was one of the biggest, one of the things, and we should maybe do an episode on it and on, mm. on its own, or at least the family of things. But that was basically their infiltration and um, surveil the FBI's infiltration and surveillance of basically everybody that J. Edgar Hoover disagreed with. Mm. All civil rights activism, several anti-war organizations, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to look into that. Too. Throw that into our grab bag of CIA shenanigans. Yeah. Grab bag uh, part two. Yeah. The blue one. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot to, to pull from. I'm sure we'll have a, a handful of grab bags uh, going forward. Yeah, yeah. When you mentioned the concept of this one, I was like, huh, I don't think this is going to be the first, or I don't think this is going to be the last of these. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in, in 1974, the New York Times published an article claiming the CIA had violated its charter by spying on anti-war activists. Uh, former CIA officials and some lawmakers called for an inquiry, uh, which was later known as the Church Committee. Mm-hmm. And so the Church Committee uh, congressional investigation revealed agency connection with journalists and civic groups. 
And the report they published showed the CIA had formed relationships with private institutions, including the press, and stated that it had found around 50 journalists or so who had official but secret relationships with the CIA. But the report wouldn't name them. Mm-hmm. In 1977, a Rolling Stone article called The CIA and the Media expanded upon the report and said that around 400 press members were considered assets by the CIA. And this also included uh, New York Times publisher Arthur Hayes Salzberger and Time Magazine analyst uh, Stuart uh, Elsop. I mean, the Church Committee, it it was a big deal uh, because oversight of the intelligence community has not been a constant thing, or at least not that level Uh of scrutiny. I mean, looks like every time we go looking, we find something. Yeah. And uh, my final note is just because the church committee refused to publish any names, which I can understand. Um, But this also led to a lot of widespread uh, unsourced claims by other reporters of like finger pointing and like, oh, you were you were CIA op the entire time, that sort of thing going on. But yeah, that that is it for uh, CIA grab bag episode one. (laughs) There's some good ones there. (laughs) And we we haven't even gone into um, what was that movie? uh, Men who talk to sheep. Oh, the, the men who stare at goats. Yeah, the men who stare at goats, yeah, because yes. that, that's an entire CIA operation right there. It really is. Uh-huh. There's uh, remote sensing and um, the MK Ultra experiments that, that have been made into, at least by movies, if not in fact, uh, things about like mind control and stuff like that. Uh-huh. I'll admit that, that I don't have all that stuff off the top of my head. I do remember them using some psychoactive stuff and testing things out but uh i think maybe we'll have to actually do the research before we talk too much before we talk about it so um yeah yeah but, i mean there there's a the story of when we gave lsd to dolphins to try yeah. to get them to understand english but <laughs> we've given lsd to spiders a bunch of other drugs uh, yeah nasa did that and mm-hmm. there's some pretty interesting stuff in the air and space museum they have the webs right mm-hmm. yeah they have pictures of the different webs that they did. And I remember seeing that at the uh, at the Air and Space Annex. You know, obviously when I had the in-laws over because I live in DC metro area, yeah. and I'm by law required to only go there when I have relatives. Exactly, yeah. But yeah, that that is it. Look forward to the next one. <laughs> I, and that's the thing that always gets me is, especially us doing some of these episodes is, I've been looking, I've been reading about this stuff for years and years grabbing various at least popular books about this kind of thing. And there's just so many things that we talk about where I've heard, you know, two sentences about it and here's the whole story, or I didn't even hear that that happened. Yeah. And so, and I consider myself reasonably well-read about this stuff, but it's just such a deep subject and it's endlessly fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Just all the things going on and you know what else is going on that may be declassified in the next like five ten years and well i mean that's that's the big thing and i might have mentioned it before but the last 10 years or so have been a little bit of a renaissance for the folks that do look at this stuff from open source material because Mm -hmm. the FOIA requests have started being really approved the ones that were really interesting started really rolling in around 2012 or so and it just keeps going at this point Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, until next time. Until next time. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.